You're a busy provider trying to stay current with the latest HIV testing, prevention, and treatment guidelines, and your pockets are overflowing with note cards. You need a convenient, trustworthy source for HIV testing, treatment, prevention, and care protocols. All healthcare professionals have a role in stopping HIV. Introducing HIV Care Tools from the AIDS Education and Training Center program. The HIV Care Tools mobile app is simple, free, and fully functional offline or online. It features quick guides for HIV prevention, screening, testing, diagnosis, and treatment. HIV Care Tools provides common clinical calculators used in HIV management and provide validated screening tools for comorbidities such as depression, substance use disorders, and PTSD. And if you need clinician-to-clinician consultation, HIV Care Tools provides one-touch access to free clinical consultation services by a multidisciplinary team of experts. Take us with you. Download HIV Care Tools today. Welcome to Nika in the Know, a podcast for healthcare providers in the HIV field. I'm Mariana Brayman. Today, I'm sitting down with two clinicians from the National Clinician Consultation Center, also known as the NCCC, which is based at the University of California, San Francisco. The NCCC operates the national PEP line and PrEP line, both of which offer free provider-to-provider teleconsultation services regarding biomedical interventions for HIV prevention. Tony Sayeg is a family nurse practitioner who provides expert consultations on HIV treatment and prevention, and Aaron Lutz is a clinical nurse specialist who provides expert consultation on HIV prevention. Thank you both for being here. Thank you for having us, Mariana. Thank you, Mariana. It's really great to be here with you today. So first, let's start with why we should be talking about PEP today. Tony, can you tell me why it's so important? Yeah, so it's really an exciting time to be speaking with you, particularly because NPEP has been given a bit more attention lately because of the recent publication and results of the DOXYPEP trial. This is a trial that investigated the use of a one-time dose of doxycycline within 72 hours of oral, anal, or vaginal sex in men who have sex with men and transgender women who are living with HIV or are on PrEP or pre-exposure prophylaxis for HIV prevention. The study showed that this regimen significantly reduced acquisition of chlamydia, gonorrhea, and syphilis in these populations. So related to HIV prevention, NPEP stands for non-occupational post-exposure prophylaxis, which involves the use of oral medications taken as soon as possible after a potential exposure to HIV. Overall, NPEP is probably not utilized as much as it could be, And one of the things we hope we can do today during our discussion is to debunk some of the myths and hesitancy hesitancy around MPEV. For example, a common concern of many of our callers is the perception that the medications used, uh, which are antiretrovirals, the same medications used for treatment for people who are living with HIV, are extremely toxic, having a lot of side effects, and that they can't be managed by clinicians who are not specialists in HIV care. We're here today to help allay some of those concerns and hopefully increase clinicians' confidence to successfully assess a patient's potential need for MPEP and prescribe MPEP if it's needed. Erin, when should MPEP be considered? Does it have to be taken within a couple of hours of a possible exposure to HIV? 
And PEP can be considered any time there's a concern that someone potentially has been exposed to HIV. It can be prescribed even if the HIV status of the source person is not known. An exposure must meet two criteria, one, a portal of entry into a person's body, and then two, a potentially infectious body fluid. Examples would include a needle stick from a needle um, found on a playground or if someone had condomless sex and is not on PrEP with a person of unknown HIV status. Another example would be if someone shared needles and didn't know the status of the person that they shared with. We get a lot of calls from providers who have questions about what constitutes an exposure, so we wanted to provide some clarification today. Uh, we can place situations into three different buckets. One would be a known exposure uh, to HIV when the source person's status is known to be HIV positive. The second bucket would be a potential exposure to HIV where the source person's status is not known, but a body fluid exposure did occur. And then the third bucket would be a non-exposure where it's really clear that there was neither a, a portal of entry or there was no potentially infectious body fluid involved or if the source person is known to be HIV negative at the time of the exposure. With regards to timely initiation of NPEP, we do know very clearly from animal studies that PEP is more effective if it started sooner rather than later. So ideally, this would be within hours of a possible exposure. The CDC's 2016 NPEP guidelines are really clear that PEP should not be started beyond 72 hours. However, if you're concerned about an exposure and it is beyond that 72 hours, please give us a call on the PEP line and we can provide expert guidance on how to proceed with NPEP decision making. And we just wanted to make a note that we actually often receive calls from clinicians with questions about NPEP for sexual assaults that occurred greater than 72 hours prior to presentation. And so we'll talk about that a little bit more in a bit. We wanted to take a moment here to really advocate for clinicians to talk to all of their patients about PEP who present with a potential exposure. We often receive calls about patients who are not told about PEP and then find out about it later through their own research or through a friend or another clinician, and then it's well beyond the 72-hour deadline. We believe that it's really, really important that patients understand that PEP is an option for them, and they should be given the opportunity to have an informed discussion with their provider of any risks that may be posed by taking the medications versus any benefit of reducing the probability of HIV acquisition based on their specific case details. Tony, what about undetectable equals untransmittable or U equals U? How does that fit into NPEP decision-making? U equals U or treatment as prevention is an important consideration in the evaluation for the need for PEP for someone who's had a sexual exposure to someone who is living with HIV. In fact, folks living with HIV who get to and remain undetectable on antiretroviral therapy for at least six months cannot transmit HIV through sex. This is based on data from the Partner and Partner 2, HTPN 052, and Opposites Attract studies, which provided conclusive evidence that U equals U applies to gay, bisexual, and other men who have sex with men, as well as male-female couples. The definition of U equals U is someone who is living with HIV on treatment and has had an undetectable HIV viral load for six months or more. If someone comes in for NPEP evaluation after sex with a partner who is living with HIV, it's helpful to have more information about any treatment their, part their partner is on, how long they've been on treatment for, their HIV viral load history, including their most recent viral load. 
This would require, of course, consent from the partner to speak with their treating provider and release of their lab results. For those folks who anticipate having an ongoing relationship with a partner who is living with HIV or shares needles to inject with someone who's living with HIV, this can be something that can help inform their future PEP or PrEP decision-making. Erin, are there any special circumstances around NPEP evaluations that would be important to share for listeners? Yeah, this is a really great question. Thanks for asking. We receive a lot of calls about NPEP after sexual assault. And so as we mentioned before, we often hear about a lot of missed opportunities, unfortunately, to start NPEP in these situations for a variety of reasons. Sometimes it's a delay that's related to systems issues, like the availability of services for survivors, or as we mentioned previously, clinicians' concerns about toxicities or inexperience in providing NPEP. We've recently had several cases of students at colleges or universities who've been unable to start NPEP in a timely manner for some of the reasons that I just mentioned, and it's a really unfortunate missed opportunity. We really want to emphasize that NPEP should be part of every evaluation related to sexual assault. It's important that a careful trauma-informed assessment and shared decision-making process is conducted. So elements to include would be weighing the chances of HIV acquisition with the survivor's own concerns about HIV acquisition, as well as a potential NPEP medication side effects. And then one more thing that I wanted to highlight here is that there's another aspect of sexual assault evaluation that sometimes gets overlooked. And so the 2016 guidelines do recommend giving a dose of hepatitis B vaccine at the time of presentation if the person is not known to be previously fully vaccinated. And then HPV vaccination is also recommended for certain age groups. STI testing should include syphilis, gonorrhea, and chlamydia. And prophylaxis for gonorrhea, chlamydia, and trichomonas should be offered. It's important to note that STI treatment guidelines have been updated since the 2016 NPEP guidelines were released. So we would refer you to the CDC's 2021 version of the STI guidelines for those updated recommendations. Tony, can you talk us through the medications that are currently recommended for NPEP and side effects? How long do people need to take NPEP for? Sure. So the 2016 CDC guidelines, uh, they do recommend three drug NPEP regimens. The first two are in one pill. It's a fixed dose combination that contains emtricitabine co-formulated with tenofovir disoproxyl fumarate. The third medication can either be dolutegravir or raltegravir. These medications are recommended by the 2016 CDC guidelines as first-line options for anyone 13 years or older, including pregnant people with normal renal function with a creatinine clearance of at least 60 mils per minute. We prefer dolutegravir over raltegravir due to the once-daily dosing of dolutegravir. Concerns about dolutegravir and neural tube defects have been allayed by updated data. So if clinicians are concerned about a pregnant person taking NPEP, we encourage them to call us on the PEP line to discuss in further detail. These medications for NPEP were chosen due to their tolerability and side effect profile. Most people do fine while taking these medications. The most common side effects folks may experience are GI related. If side effects are severe, uh, we could consider changing to a different regimen. We could recommend calling the PEP line for consultation for these cases. In addition, there are alternative regimens for people who have impaired renal function, which are listed in the 2016 NPEP guidelines, 
And clinicians can also call us for expert consultation if a switch is indicated for impaired renal function. A PET medication should be taken for a total of 28 days. We do get a fair number of calls where there is a misunderstanding that PEP is a one-time dose similar to STI prophylaxis, or we've heard folks think it's only taken for three days, for example. So we wanted to emphasize that the prescription should be for 28 days. However, there may be some scenarios when MPEP should be stopped early. For example, if the source person is tested for HIV and determined to be HIV negative, then PEP should be discontinued. In addition, if someone was experiencing an adverse reaction to PEP or experiencing intolerable side effects or toxicities, we could consider stopping PEP or consider an alternative regimen. And as an aside, it's recommended in the CDC guidelines that patients receive the full PEP prescription at the initial evaluation to support adherence and reduce barriers to taking NPEP. In addition, the guidelines also recommend checking in with the patient a couple of days after the initial evaluation to see if they were able to pick up the medication, see how well they're tolerating them, offer any additional support if needed. Uh, we do receive a lot of calls where the patient was, say, not able to pick up their prescription. For example, a pharmacy doesn't carry the medication, uh, needed to order it in special order, or the copay was too high, the patient doesn't have insurance and has to pay out of pocket. Um, clinicians can intervene and support the patient with helping access patient assistance programs such as copay co support or calling the prescription to another pharmacy that has confirmed they have the PEP medications in stock. If PEP is prescribed, we want to make sure that as many barriers to taking it are addressed up front to facilitate a timely start and adherence. We also want to mention that we may see different PEP options in the future. For example, there's some data from a recent study from the Fenway Institute using the single combination pill of bictegravir, entracitabine, and tenofovir alafenamide for PEP that was generally well tolerated with 90% of participants completing the 28-day course. You mentioned that many clinicians are concerned about the toxicities of PEP medications. Erin, can you walk us through what these are and how to monitor for them? Are there any, you know, additional lab monitor monitoring clinicians should be checking? Yeah, renal and hepatic toxicities with PEP medications are exceedingly rare in healthy individuals. However, the guidelines do recommend checking chemistry panels at baseline and while someone is on PEP to ensure that they're not developing any potential PEP-associated toxicity, and there's no need to monitor for a CBC. Anytime someone's being evaluated for a possible exposure to HIV, we also need to consider assessing their hepatitis B status, their hepatitis B immunization history, and hepatitis C status. So regardless of whether or not PEP is taken, patients should be monitored at baseline and follow-up for HIV, hepatitis B, and C to determine their status at the time of the exposure and then assess if their status changes at follow-up. In addition, it's really important to try to obtain the source person's status. So if the source person can be tested at or around the same time as the exposure, and they're negative for HIV, hepatitis B, and C, then no follow-up testing is needed and PEP can be stopped for the exposed patient. If clinicians are concerned that the source person may be in the window period, and that would be defined as the time between an HIV exposure and when a test can detect HIV, please give us a call on the PEP line and we can discuss that in further detail. 
In addition, for anyone who's presenting for sexual exposure, STI and pregnancy testing should be offered. STI testing should include urine or vaginal, anal, and oral swabs as indicated. You also mentioned that pregnant people can take NPEP if NPEP is indicated. Tony, what about people who are breast or chest feeding? Great question. So breast or chest feeding is not a contraindication to NPEP. There is a more nuanced conversation that needs to take into consideration a few things. Uh, One, the likelihood of HIV acquisition from the exposure. Two, benefits of breast or chest feeding. And three, the breast or chest feeding desires and goals of the parent. This is a truly patient-centered conversation that we have a lot of experience navigating. And we encourage clinicians to call us when they're caring for a person who is breast or chest feeding. Erin, for people who will be transitioning from PEP to PrEP, does there need to be a gap between stopping NPEP and starting PrEP to determine their HIV status after the exposure that led to them taking NPEP? Yeah, it's definitely an option for patients to transition seamlessly from NPEP to PrEP. And we recommend shared decision-making. So things to consider would include the likelihood of ongoing exposures during or after PEP and the patient's priority to determine a definitive HIV status before starting PrEP. If clinicians have any questions about the transition from NPEP to PrEP or just PrEP in general, we also have a dedicated PrEP line available to U.S. clinicians, and it's free, just like the PEP line. And the phone number is 855-HIV-PREP or 855-448-7737. Tony, for people who might not be ready to transition to PrEP after taking NPEP, what are some other strategies clinicians can consider talking to people about besides PrEP to reduce the likelihood of HIV acquisition? Providers should have a patient-centered conversation that aims to balance quality of life or enjoyment and health-affecting activities with measures that can reduce the likelihood of HIV acquisition. Uh, Some of those strategies include things like access to safe injection supplies, syringe disposal, overdose education and prevention, access to medications for substance use disorder treatment, access to regular STI and HIV testing, including partner testing and treatment, access to condoms that actually fit, as well as lubricant, topping, and oral sex. Ensuring folks have access to NPEP if needed for an unexpected exposure is also important. One strategy is to offer a prescription upfront called PEP in pocket so that it can be filled promptly when needed with clear instructions to present for testing as soon as possible. Another strategy to consider is 211 on-demand PrEP dosing for eligible folks when daily PrEP is not an attractive option. Or folks may not be aware that there is now an injectable formulation of PrEP, which can be given once every two months. We recommend sharing information with people about all the various prevention options available so folks can make an informed decision about what might work best in any individual's current circumstances and their health priorities. There are a lot of wonderful wonderful resources available, but one great place to start for information is the Harm Reduction Coalition website, which has a library of free resources available. Erin, what resources are available for people who may need support to pay for PEP? Yeah, so for underinsured or uninsured folks, antiretroviral drug manufacturers actually offer patient assistance programs that can cover some or all of the out-of-pocket costs associated with NPEP medications. 
And then importantly, um, fixed-dose tenofovir and citritivine is now available in generic form, but dolutegravir and raltegravir are still branded. Your local regional AETC or local health department or local sexual health clinics are really well set up to troubleshoot access concerns or may have access to or information about funding mechanisms that allow access to NPEP services and medications. And then we also encourage folks to call us on the PEP line for assistance in navigating other options that could include online coupons, as well as nonprofit organizations that offer assistance. Tony, any final takeaways as we begin to wrap up? Yeah, so we recognize that prescribing MPEP and monitoring may not be something clinicians feel comfortable doing. And we hope that our being here today has helped dispel some myths and increase listeners' confidence. We welcome clinicians to call us with any questions they may have. We're here to support you. We love speaking to our callers and encourage folks to reach out anytime. Thank you, Mariana, for having us. It's been a wonderful experience. Tony, Aaron, thank you so much for joining us and giving us such a great overview of all the ins and outs of NPEP. I certainly learned a lot. We really hope you learned something new today. To learn more about Nika AETC's work and our role in ending the HIV epidemic, visit us at www.nikaaetc.org. That's www.nikaaetc.org. If you have questions or comments about anything we covered today, or if you have suggestions for topics you'd like to hear us talk about, don't hesitate to email us at podcast at nikaaetc.org. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T at nikaaetc.org. Stay safe and we'll see you on Thursday for our next episode of Nika in the Know. This presentation is supported by the Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA, of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, HHS. The contents are those of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views of, nor an endorsement by HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government.